Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Ruth this morning. After a total of six hours last Sunday on Revelation 20 and the Millennium, I am relieved to look at a much simpler book in the book of Ruth and uh, emphasizing uh, the ladies among us and the role that women have played in redemptive history and hopefully being of some encouragement to those of you who are gathered here today. Ruth is a bit of a both and. Here's what I mean by that. Ruth is spectacular in her faithfulness to the Lord. In fact, you might be interested to know that in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth actually comes immediately after the book of Proverbs. And the effect of the placement of Ruth at that place in the Bible lends itself to direct connections being drawn between the Proverbs 31 woman and the example that Ruth sets in the four chapters of this little book. In fact, within the Jewish tradition, Ruth is all often regarded in that way. Much of what we see of the Proverbs 31 woman is modeled after in the experience of, of Ruth. Everywhere this morning, that passage is being preached, and emphasis will, will be given to the fact that she works willingly with her hands. She reaches out to the poor. Her husband is known at the city gates. She opens her mouth with wisdom. Her sons rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also praises her. In so many ways, there are direct connections between the example that Ruth sets in Ruth 1 through 4 and the Proverbs 31 woman, that virtuous, ideal woman, which is described in the closing chapter of the book of Proverbs. However, on the other hand, here's the both and, she is rather unspectacular. In other words, it's the faithfulness of Ruth and what might otherwise be regarded as ordinary or mundane things that God chooses to work within to do something very, very spectacular. In other words, she is, at least superficially, unspectacular, but she finds herself in service to the plan of a spectacular God. And for that reason, God does extraordinary things in this very ordinary woman we know as Ruth the Moabitess. If you found your way to Ruth chapter 1, we're going to read the first five verses together. Assuming you're there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Ruth 1 and verse 1. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to live in the land of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they entered the land of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. And after they lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. First five verses of the book of Ruth describe the desperate circumstances into which Ruth enters. We could no more than read the first phrase of verse 1 to be signaled that this is a difficult season in Israel's history. In the time when judges ruled or judged Israel, we are introduced to Ruth. 
If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the period of the judges is among the most embarrassing episodes or epics in Israel's history, second only to their being taken captive in Babylon. The period of the judges is marked by immorality. In fact, immediately after Joshua, the son of Nun, died, having been the protege of Moses, Israel is, for all intents and purposes, without a leader. They're led in a somewhat tribal way. There are regional judges, regional leaders. Israel has been ineffective. They have failed to follow through with the command of God to purge the promised land of other peoples. And so they are consistently attacked from without. And the unfortunate reality is that they are influenced by the paganism of those people within. Not only is this a troubled and difficult time in the sense that they are being physically attacked, it is a troubled and difficult time is that the, in that the physical attacks are often brought as the judgment of God that is prevalent among the people for the idolatry that is prevalent among the people of Israel at this time. The time of the judges is a bad time morally, economically, militarily. It is a bad season characterized by a single verse repeated frequently throughout the book of Judges. It was a time during which there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. But verses one through five go further to describe the desperate state of things during this period. It was during the time of the judges that there was a famine in the land and a man left Bethlehem and Judah with his wife and two sons to live in the land of Moab for a while. They lived in Bethlehem but the famine was so severe that they were forced to move to the Moabite area, the Moabite region, among the people of Moab. The word, it's, the word Bethlehem itself is literally translated house of bread. Bethlehem is house of bread in the Hebrew. So this is not your ordinary famine. This is a famine that is so severe there is no bread in the house of bread. Not only were they forced to move in order to escape the famine, but they moved into the territory of Israel's most hated rival during this time, the region of the Moabite people. This is a really bad situation. Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, pull up stakes in Bethlehem and retreat to the region of Moab, where both Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah, take Moabite wives for themselves. That's not the best of things for the family either. And things continue to spiral downward. Elimelech dies, which leaves Naomi a widow. A widow in those days might have been destitute except for the resources provided by her sons. And so at least initially there is some help, there is some aid for Naomi, but those sons would die as well. What we have at the conclusion of verse number five is a situation wherein Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth are left to themselves. In the patriarchy of the ancient world, a woman without a husband and no sons was destitute. She would have been entirely reliant on the merciful, merciful provision of any friends or neighbors she might have been able to find. Things are just about as bad as they could conceivably be. In fact, they're so bad that in verses six and following, Naomi would encourage Orpah and Ruth to go back to their families. Go back to what you know. I'm going back to Bethlehem. You go back to your families. Let's throw ourselves on the mercy of our friends and neighbors who might provide for us in our hour of great need. 
Initially, both Orpah and Ruth are resistant to the idea of leaving Naomi behind. They both express a desire to stay along with her. But Naomi explains in verse 11 of chapter 1, You should go home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Verse 14, the Bible says, again, they wept loudly and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law is going back for her people and to her God, follow your sister-in-law. What's being described here is, is the cultural reality in the days of the judges and what is an ongoing cultural reality in, in some more antiquated parts of the world today. There, there was some description of this concept in Deuteronomy chapter 25, but, but the, the, the full effect or the working out of this institution as it's described here is a phenomenon born out of culture. The idea here is someone who is close to kin preferably a brother, would take the now widow to himself. And the children that they would bear would further the ancestral lineage of the deceased brother. So there's an element of sacrifice involved in this next of kin's willingness to take this now widow to himself. He would be saddled with all of the expectations and financial obligations that once belonged to the brother or the next of kin, and he would take the wife to himself, provided that the wife was a willing participant in this arrangement. This is an ancient world way of ensuring that the needs of a widow are well met. An ancient world way of ensuring that the family name of the deceased is carried on. Naomi says, I'm too old to have a husband. And even if I did, if I were to conceive a child tonight, you would still be in the predicament of waiting for that son to come of age, to come to a place of li in life of being able to meet the needs of that you're surely to experience along the way. Orpah turns back, but Ruth insists on staying. In fact, she replies to Naomi's resistance to her faithfulness in the words that are probably the best known in all of the book of Ruth. You'll know them. Forsake me not to leave you or persuade me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. I will live where you live. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. <laughs> May the Lord do so and more also if anything but death parts you and me. Where do you know those words from? From wedding ceremonies, which is interesting given this is a daughter-in-law speaking to a mother-in-law. I've often been asked to cite these verses in a wedding ceremony. I do periodically, noting that this measure of devotion is practical and helpful and, in fact, essential between a husband and a wife. Always careful to know that this is a daughter-in-law expressing this to a mother-in-law. It's interesting when you're reading these words, looking at a bride who has googly eyes for her groom, feeling her affections as expressed by these verses, while seated down on the front row is the soon-to-be mother-in-law to whom she has not spoken for some time, nor does she have plans to. But that's the dynamic that lies behind Ruth 1, 16 and 17. This is Ruth expressing her faithful devotion to Naomi. I will stay at your side. This is a bitter season. 
This is a dark day. These are desperate circumstances, but we will bear with them together. Verse 18 says, Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go, and so she stopped trying to persuade her. Obviously, Naomi's perspective, her outlook is rather bitter, pessimistic. In fact, she changes her name. She insists that the women of Bethlehem call her not Naomi, but Mara, for the Lord has made me bitter, she says. Now, things take a sweet turn, a somewhat ironic turn in chapter 2. Every indication has been from Naomi that there is no hope for them. Naomi would have known the family lineage far better than Ruth if Ruth knew anything at all about the family lineage. But there is no indication whatsoever that there remains a family redeemer or a kinsman redeemer that might take either Naomi or Ruth to themselves as a wife. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side named Boaz. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. We have ourselves a candidate. And I love the way the story is told. It is, it is told with power and irony. Look down to verse number 3. The Bible says there, So Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion of land belonging to Boaz, who is from Elimelech's family. Now, the author is careful to not state in too obvious of terms what, what we're left to understand by implication, that this is not a coincidence, that she doesn't just happen to come across the portion of land that was in the possession of Boaz, who was a family redeemer. Under what seemed like confusing and chaotic, desperate circumstances, God was at work in a very orderly way, advancing the plan of redemption, advancing the plan of salvation. God was doing something beneath the chaos of Ruth and Naomi's life for their good, for his glory, and ultimately for the salvation of a people of every tongue and tribe and nation. Ruth is going to prove over time to be the most unlikely of heroes. She is a Moabite woman. There is no advantage for Ruth in returning to Bethlehem with Naomi. Things could perhaps get much, much worse for them. But she remains faithful and providentially, again, in this way that, that exceeds what, what was perceived to be chaos for Naomi. God is at work in this very orderly way. There begins to be what, what I think is fair to say is some kind of attraction or connection between Ruth and Boaz. In fact, by the time we come to verse 5, Boaz asked his servant, who, who was in charge of the harvesters, who, who, whose young woman is this? Already there seems to be some connection that exists between the two of them, and he begins to make provision for them. Now, God had prescribed for the people of Israel, a mechanism for meeting the needs of the impoverished. It is an ingenious system. I wish we could come up with modern ways of enacting the same type of system to meet the needs of impoverished. If you were harvesting the crop, you were required that you would not pick up the scraps or what was fallen behind as the grain harvest itself was gathered. There were certain rows around the edges when during harvest would be left untouched so that those in need of sustenance for themselves or their families might come along and gather for themselves. It had, 
it had two great effects. One, it involved those who were themselves experiencing misfortune and were impoverished to, to, to practice, to work, to participate physically in the meeting of their material needs. And in doing so, it achieved a second great feature, which was to maintain the dignity of those who were experiencing misfortune and needed sustenance for themselves and for their families. It allowed them the ability to contribute something to the well-being of their families. This was God's system for meeting the needs of the impoverished among Israel. That's where we find Ruth, when she happens across that portion of land that belonged to Boaz, she was doing what the impoverished would have done in Israel, and she was picking up the scraps left behind by those who were gathering the barley harvest, and she was plucking the heads of grain from those rows they had been prohibited from harvesting for themselves. She was taking advantage of this system implemented in Israel to meet the needs of people in just the circumstances of Ruth and Naomi. Boaz takes notice of Ruth, asking again, whose woman is this? And some explanation is given. Boaz finally approaches Miss Ruth in verse 8 and says to her, listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they're harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you're thirsty, go and drink from their jars the young men have filled. He continues to meet the needs that Ruth has, providing for her so abundantly that Naomi would ask in verse 19, Ruth, where did you gather barley today? And where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. Ruth told her mother-in-law about the men she'd worked with and said, the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued, the man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. For the first time, hope registers with Naomi. And it's all happened by coincidence, right? It all happens by chance. She just happened to go to the right field. That's her perspective, their perspective. But God has ordered the steps of a faithful Ruth, bringing her to this place of provision, so powerfully so that even the pessimistic Naomi is now filled with hope and enthusiasm as to what the future might hold. So Naomi realizes that Boaz is there and that he's provided. And if he's provided in this way so lavishly, there may in fact be some type of connection or attraction that exists. And so Naomi begins to do what so many of you ladies so enjoy doing. She begins to pursue a matchmaking endeavor between Ruth, the Moabitess, and Boaz, who is a family redeemer. Now, go to, go to chapter 3 and, and verse 1. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I find security for you so that you'll be taken care of? Now, isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening, he'll be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. In other words, no, that, I mean, it just makes sense, Ruth. This is the God. This is it. This is it. Then she has some matchmaking advice for Ruth in verse 3 of our passage. This is Naomi's step-by-step -step for finding a husband. I'm not suggesting to you that this is a prescription that's suitable to 21st century matchmaking, but this is the way Naomi says it. 
Wash. That's step one. Y'all with me? Step two, put on perfumed oil and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying. Go in and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will explain to you what you should do. I taught, <clears throat> I taught a Hebrew class this past semester. We just finished last week, and Ruth was our passage to translate. They translated the book of, of Ruth, and every single student at this point in Ruth said, Dr. Stevens, what, what does this mean? Go in and uncover his feet and lie down. My answer was the same to each of those students as it is to you this morning. I don't know. <laughs> but here's what I do know. The integrity and the nobility with which Boaz treats a Ruth who has put herself in a susceptible position is noteworthy and history-changing. Here's what I mean by that. Ruth chapter 3 is, is to be regarded in opposition to Genesis chapter 38. I'm going to tell you what I mean by that. When we read books in the New Testament, we think in terms of audience and author and how the circumstances of their life influence the way they cast a story or make a statement. Scarcely do we ever think in those terms when we're reading Old Testament books. I will submit to you this morning that the prophet Samuel is in all likelihood the author of the book of Ruth. And that he is writing during the time of David's kingship. And that a major function of the book of Ruth is to commend David as a king superior for the people of Israel to Saul. Who was, by the way, of the tribe of Benjamin. If you're a student of the Old Testament, you may remember that the book of Judges ends with this embarrassing episode in the history of the tribe of Benjamin. In fact, Benjamin is almost eradicated, so much so that they actually choose men from other tribal areas to marry the women of Benjamin so that the tribe itself can continue on. Benjamin has been excluded as a tribe from which we can expect a good king would come. Saul, who was the first king of Israel, was of the tribe of Benjamin, and he failed miserably. The Spirit of the Lord left him, and God would now anoint through the ministry of Samuel the prophet David as Israel's king. David, by the way, of the tribe of Judah. So we're, we're left to explore the possibility that Judah could be the tribe that could provide for us the kind of king we really need. The problem is there's an embarrassing episode in Judah's history as well. And it's described for us in Genesis chapter 38, where the namesake of the tribe of Judah, the head of the tribe of Judah, Judah himself, takes a Canaanite wife. Her name is Shua. I've said this wrong in every service until now. I told Pastor Frank before he came out, I'm going to try to get all the names right when I do this the third time. Judah married Shua, and they had two sons. They had a son named Ur, and they had a son named Onan. Ur, the oldest son, married a woman named Tamar, and Ur died. And naturally, as was customary, Onan took Tamar as his wife. But he did not want to perpetuate the, the name of his brother Ur. So he took measures to ensure, for lack of a better way of expressing it, that Tamar did not, did not get pregnant when the marriage itself was consummated. 
And for that, God brought judgment against him. He was killed, and Tamar was once more without a husband. Now, Judah was responsible for providing Tamar with yet another son who would be her husband and allow that she could bear children. But he failed to do it. And Tamar, eventually in frustration, puts a veil over her face and sets up beside the road as a cult prostitute. And eventually, along comes Judah. He lays with her, and she conceives a child. In time, Tamar circles back and provides evidence that the child that she is carrying, in fact, the children she has proven to be carrying, belong to none other than Judah himself. It is an embarrassing episode in the history of the tribe of Judah and a great big blot on the resume of that people. So when Boaz treats Ruth with integrity and nobility, he in some ways rectifies a problematic situation from his family history. Here's what I want to say to you, and I hope this proves to be an encouragement to your heart this morning. Just because someone in your family or your parents fouled it up at every turn does not mean that you are bound to those same decisions. Just because your father was an adulterer doesn't mean you have to mimic that pattern in your life. Just because your parents made dreadful decisions does not mean that you are bound to that. Just because your family, tr family tree may be jacked up nine ways from never does not mean that you have to orient your life around that kind of dysfunction. Start a new family tree. Rectify the problems of the past. That is precisely what Boaz does in treating Ruth with nobility and integrity. I would submit to you that there's a romantic element, perhaps even a seductive element to what Ruth does in our passage. But that does not negate the responsibility of a noble man in Boaz to treat her with dignity, with nobility, to maintain his character, even under what may have been some deal of temptation. He preserves her good reputation. In fact, he even notes, all the people in my town know that you're a woman of noble character, and he smuggles her out of the threshing floor under the cover of darkness. He, he works, he labors, he is striving in order to preserve her reputation among the people. This is a good brother. He does what is right. And in treating her the right way, he contributes to the establishment of the name of Ruth in redemptive history. In some ways, not to take anything away from Ruth, but in some ways, we are talking about Ruth this morning because Boaz was a man of integrity, a man of character, a man of nobility who did what was right by this young woman. There is a great deal to be said for that. Boaz informs Ruth, that he is a kinsman or family redeemer, but there is one closer. Chapter 4 tells the story of Boaz running down this closer to kin than himself and the negotiation that ensues. It's a pretty clever sales pitch by Boaz. He at first talks about the pros, and just about the time the closer to kin is willing to enter into this engagement. He really begins to sell the cons. Are you sure you want to do this? It sounds like my boys when they're making a trade. This is the bad. This is the good. You don't want to do that. 
he, does a, he does a good job at pitching things in such a way that the otherwise family redeemer is willing to forego his right of redemption and allow that Boaz would take Ruth as his bride. In verse 6 of chapter 4, the redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself or I'll ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. They exchange sandals. And the book of Ruth explains that this was customary in Israel during this period. This is how you bind a contract. And so the contract is made. Go down to verse 11 of chapter 4. The elders and all the people who were at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathah and famous in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he was intimate with her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise the Lord who's not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap and took care of him. The neighbor women said a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that in the Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament, the book of Ruth comes immediately after Proverbs. But as you have likely observed this morning, it does not appear that way in the Greek or English ordering of the Old Testament. It comes right between Judges and the books of Samuel. And it does so for a purpose. I don't know which of these is the preferable placement of these two books. I can make good arguments for each. I do think there is some value in seeing Ruth as the Proverbs 31 virtuous woman. So many of the characteristics described in Proverbs 31 are demonstrated in the life of Ruth. But if we go back to this idea of author and audience, what Samuel the prophet sought to do, he is again commending David as the preferred king, Judah as the preferred tribe. Now, in order to be the king of Israel, you need to be Israelite. And culturally, in order to be Israelite, your Israelite genealogy needs to be untouched by any Gentile influence for a minimum of three generations. Ruth concludes demonstrating for us that there are precisely three generations between Ruth the Moabitess being wed to Boaz, the faithful brother, the noble man, the man of prominence and the descendancy of David who would become the king of Israel. Samuel writes, in my estimation, for the express purpose of demonstrating the suitability of David for the kingship of Israel, and in doing so locates this unlikely heroine right in the heart of the story of God's plan for redemption and the seating of a Davidic king on the throne of Israel. Surely Samuel could not envision the totality of what God was doing in this moment of sweet providence. And that not only has Ruth the Moabitess been placed within the lineage of David, the king of Israel, but Ruth the Moabitess has been placed within the lineage of Jesus, the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. 
I think sometimes, and, and perhaps I could be in sympathy with this misperception, sometimes in our mind we think that God is exclusively concerned with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. But that could not be further from the truth. From the very foundation of the world, it was the heart of our God to pursue a people all his own of every tongue and tribe and nation. And Ruth the Moabitess is yet another example of God saving to the uttermost those who come from among the nations, among those of different tongues and tribes, ethnicities, and backgrounds. It has been the pattern, the plan of our God throughout redemptive history to work through unlikely and imperfect people to bring about an undeserved salvation for an unlikely and imperfect people. Isn't God gracious? Now, I want to go back to this idea of, of both and in Ruth. She is spectacular in some ways. But only in so much as God has empowered and enabled, only in so much as God has marked by providence her path. Outside of that, she is rather unspectacular. Some, some of you ladies, and this is true for men as well, but, but some of you ladies, you have self-imposed certain expectations to which you may or may not live up. You, you, you may have self-imposed ambitions that you can or cannot achieve, but your value does not hang on your ability to achieve or surpass those self-imposed expectations. I've got, I have a bit of a beef with Mother's Day and Father's Day sermons. I mentioned earlier Proverbs 31. All over the world, preachers are preaching Proverbs 31. And in many instances, my, my, my beef with the sermon is not what is said. My beef is what is not said. In, in, many, in many instances, the passage itself will be held up and women will be called to be the Proverbs 31 woman. And that's right. That's good. You should reach out your hand to the poor. You should speak with wisdom when you speak. You should assist in providing for the needs of your family. You should conduct yourself with integrity and with honor, so much so that your sons and your husband rise up and call you blessed. You should, you should, you should. But what is scarcely ever said is that you can't, you can't, you can't. The problem with the do-good Mother's Day or Father's Day sermon is that you and I, in the natural person, don't have the ability to do that. And you're left with thinking. It reinforces what you've already convinced yourselves of, that the love that God has for you is somehow contingent upon your ability to measure up to the self-imposed standard. And what I want to say to you this morning, as God expressed his love in this sweet providential way for an unspectacular Ruth, that her value does not hinge upon her ability to demonstrate or walk in the principles of Proverbs 31 any more than God's love for you hinges upon your ability to do what Proverbs 31 calls you to do. In fact, your ability to do Proverbs 31 is entirely reliant upon the love and affection that God has shown you. You cannot do it. God loves you anyway. So often that, that, that the language of God loves you just the way you are is misappropriated. 
But if there's ever been a place where it's appropriate, it's here. And now God does love you, not because of who you are, not because of what you've done, or because of where you come from, but in spite of all of those things. God's favor for you hinges entirely on an old rugged cross where Jesus bled to atone for your sin and for mine and an empty garden grave that Jesus would walk out of in great victory. Yes and amen to the morals, to the values, to the virtues to which the Bible calls us to. Yes and amen to the call to obedience to Christ. Yes and amen, walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. But the key to unlocking that capacity for obedience is realizing that in and of ourselves, we cannot do it. Only Jesus can. You've got to rest in that. Just stop. Just stop. Stop convincing yourself that through sheer will and self-determination, you're going to do everything described in Proverbs 31. You can't pull it off. Like you... There's a reason that she is the proverbial woman. That would strongly imply she does not exist. In an ideal world, this is perfection. I'm looking around this room. If she did exist, most of you brothers couldn't get her to marry you anyway. <laughs> this is the proverbial woman. So stop stop measuring yourself stop finding your worth in your in your evaluation of self against that proverbial pattern embrace the values the morals embrace the commands that may be implicit in that but recognize that your ability to live up to that expectation is a power that must be supplied by the presence and power of God's holy spirit can you say that Jesus is enough Ladies, do you find your value in the fact that Jesus bled and died for you and that by faith and repentance you have found your identity in Jesus? Or in the measuring up to self-imposed self expectations? Got some children, husband. We live in a house that meets a certain standard expectation. We're in the right neighborhood. I got the right kind of job. I drive the right kind of car. Wear the right kind of clothes. Do you find your value in those things? Or do you find your value in the fact that you have been identified with Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, by faith and repentance, and he is empowering in me more than I might have ever mustered by sheer will and self-determination? Gentlemen, you're not exempted from this conversation either. And I watch you brothers, and I'm from time to time tempted to be sucked in, finding value in career success, and physical ability, and social appearance, measuring up to self-imposed expectation, when the only real worth I or you have ever had is that we have been loved by the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. My invitation to you, dear sisters, today is to rest, to be still, and to know there is but one God. And he has, by grace, set his affection on us in the sending forth of his only son. That's good news for all of us, men and women alike. Let's go to him in prayer.
Father, thank you for the chance to give consideration to the book of Ruth and the sweet witness it bears in history to your power to use unspectacular people in the most spectacular of ways. Lord, we love you, but not as much as you love us. And I pray, God, that you would lift the burdens that have saddled the hearts of so many who are here. Help us to find liberty and freedom in Jesus. We ask these things in the power of his name. Amen.